All right, if you have your Bibles, go with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. I enjoy singing very thoroughly. Um, and I always look forward to the opportunity to open the Word with you guys. And I pray that it's as good for your soul this morning as the singing has been for mine. We're going to continue working through First Timothy this morning. I'm just going to handle uh, about seven verses, roughly. What you guys saw a couple weeks ago, we kind of saw it. Timothy kind of sets the stage for roles within the church. He talks about men versus women. He talks about women and their role. Who I think we thoroughly, hopefully understand that Paul prohibits a lady from exercising authority and teaching over a man um, in the church. And, but we see that God has gifted her clearly in other ways to serve. And, and uh, then for the men, that means that we have a responsibility. And so then we step into chapter 3. And we saw last week, 1 through 7, what I hope uh, was something that painted a picture for you of what can be, what should be, the glorious relationship between um, a flock and their shepherds. Um, what can and should be that relationship and how wonderful it can be. Um, this week, we're going to take a look at the position or the idea of deacons. What is, what is deacon? What is, a, what is a deacon? What do deacons do? What does deaconing mean for the rest of us? For those who are not uh, uh, official deacons, what does that mean for us? What's the difference between a deacon and an elder? What role do they serve? What? What does it look like? Now, it's cool because as we study this, as, as a, a younger church, and by younger I mean like we've not been around as a ecclesia or as a gathering of believers. We've not been around for a super long time. So like there's in many ways, I and I think you will be able to relate to Acts chapter 6 that we'll read this morning in conjunction with this First Timothy passage. You'll see that in Acts chapter 6, what's going on is, is the church is beginning and it's forming and there's new things coming about and all of a sudden now some, some struggles come about and they've got to figure out a way to handle it. And so they say, let's bring in some deacons and, and, and we'll figure out how to handle this with them. And, and uh, so they kind of are, again, figuring things out as they go. And, and I feel in many ways like that as a church, you know, being about five years old, which I still can't believe that we're five years old, it still feels like. In my mind, like it's been two years, you know. Uh, maybe for, for you guys it feels like it's been five years. I know for me, and I think Rusty feels like it's been like two. It's been, it's been super fast. Uh, still trying to figure out what the heck we're doing. And, uh, but God's Word is good, and I think giving us some direction. And, 
And so in many ways, this is a good stepping stone for us. And I think this is good timing uh, in God's providence for us as a church. And thinking about this idea of deacons and deaconing, and what does that mean? So I want to start off with this. The idea of deaconing, or the idea of, of uh, being a deacon, I think is a lost concept in general in our society. You say, well, what is, what is deaconing? I would say this. In our culture, in general, anything considered servile or anything that's servanthood related is, is largely looked down upon. Uh, anyone who would be a servant must have made some sort of poor decisions along the way, right? Um, I would say it's just kind of a general concept. And, and, and it's important for us to think about that because when we come into the text... We're going to come in with some of that baggage. We're going to come in with some of those thoughts. I would say this, if you have any kind of lengthy history in the church, uh, depending on the church, I know my church background, so I, and, and honestly, that's going to, a lot of that's going to come out today as well, um, just to be honest. Um, but in church in general, the way I've seen church done is that the elders really have become like the paid servants of the church. They're the ones that get paid to prepare all the administration, to take care of the facilities, to plan all the functions and programs, to take care of the physical needs, to do all the hospital visits, to help people move from house to house. <laughs> we have lots of people who around here like to move, like every year. Uh, but uh, I, I'm not saying that's necessarily true here. That's just what I've seen, right? And I think a lot of us have seen that too. If we, we've been around, particularly if you have a Southern Baptist background, that is very much the case. The pastors are the paid dudes who get to kind of do everything. And then that's what we pay him for. I've even heard that said. Well, don't we pay him to do hospital visits? Don't we pay him to do, you know? Um, it's interesting. Again, from a little bit of background, because I know quite a few of you have of that. And, and if you don't, then that's good and bad, I think. But uh, uh, it might be a blessing. It might not be. But uh, I... I for the record, I am happy that my background is in Southern Baptist. There's lots of good things there, just for the record, since this is being recorded. Uh, in, the, in, the Baptist, in the Southern Baptist Church, here's what's happened. Right? Uh, Southern Baptist Church. Deacons have really become the functional elders. Like Deacons function as the overseers, and the pastors function underneath of the deacons, which is such a bizarre thing to me. But literally, if you were to, I, I'm not exaggerating, I think I'm being conservative, probably 80% of Southern Baptist churches function with deacon oversight, which is just bizarre. Um, I would say, uh, even me, going into seminary, like, struggled with them, going, what is, what is the deal? And then, as I worked through the text, and I'm kind of like, wow, Why? Um, now, I went to a Southern Baptist seminary, and the Southern Baptist seminary taught that deacon oversight was horrifically wrong. Um, so hopefully that'll filter into the churches over the next few decades. But, but nevertheless, if I, I mean, I know some of you, because some of us have the same church background, that even that in that church background that we went to uh, has deacon oversight, um, which is, again, just absolutely bizarre. So the pastors answer to the deacons. Which is, again, just, just so weird. But I want to point out to you that if servitude in our culture is something that we look down upon, and, 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 and let, me, let me be clear here, like, let me help us with this. Because you may not look down on servitude, but you might idolize authority and oversight. And the idea of 
idolizing authority and oversight, is, the adverse of that is looking down upon servitude. You may not just actively think servitude, that's bad, I don't want to do that, but you're avoiding it like the plague is... Okay, so if servitude, though, I would say this, just as an introductory statement, if servitude is something to be, to be looked down upon, then our Savior, I think, is to be pitied the most. And I just want us to kind of let that thought permeate us as we begin to look at the text this morning. That if servitude is something to be looked down upon, then our Savior, I think, is to be pitied the most. Let's just walk into the text with that in the back of our mind. Now today, clearly 1 Timothy 3, 8-13 is our primary text, but I'm going to couple with that Acts 6, verses 1-6. through 6. So it's really going to be, we're going to bounce between both of these passages all morning long. They go hand in hand. They're going to help us, particularly as a church and where we're at as a church. This helps us move kind of into an, an, maybe a new season for us and, and some things to be looking forward to to the future. So there's, there's, there's just lots of good that I hope comes from these passages today. So let's read Acts 6, 1 through 6, and then we'll go read 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 13. All right, 6. Acts 6, 1 through 6. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number... A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, 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 right? And Pumbaa, as Rusty says, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Wonderful. 1 Timothy 3, 8-13. I'd keep your maybe book, your Bible marked there in both places. Uh, 1 Timothy 3, 8-13 says, Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first. Let, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So my, my goal, my goal, I think the text's goal, I, and I hope to help us as a church would be that we would see practical servanthood as a picture of the gospel, first off, and that we would see deacons as those who would lead us in serving, particularly the practical needs of the body. So that's my goal, that we would see practical servanthood, first of all, as a picture of the gospel. And then second of all, that we would see deacons as those who would lead us in serving, particularly the practical needs of the body. So, in the spirit of what we did last week, we talked about some foundational truths, and then 
And we talked about some purposes of God for this office and for this body. I want to start this week again with three foundational truths concerning deacons. Three foundational truths that we need to keep in mind as we look at the idea of deaconhood. First one is this. Jesus came to deacon. Jesus came to deacon. I put that in quotes for a reason. Matthew 20, 25-28 says this, But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. If you reread verse 28 with me, the, in the original language, if we were just to transliterate, just take the, what is in the Greek language, it would be, even as the Son of Man came not to be deaconed, but to deacon and to give His life as a ransom for many. Now, I don't know that I'm transliterating that perfectly, uh, but the idea, the word used for serve is the same word used for deacon in 1 Timothy. So Jesus came to serve. So I just want you to see that. He, 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 now I will say this. He came not as a deacon, I think in the later sense of the word that we're getting to when it's in 1 Timothy. But he certainly came with the idea of deacon as we see in Acts. And, and that, I'll draw some distinction for you for that later hopefully. But we must have a profound understanding of the servitude of our Savior if we are to understand the servitude that He has called us to. We've got to see that. So I would encourage you this week to spend some time looking at the servant, thinking and pondering the servanthood of Christ. How just what did He do to serve? What did His deaconing look like? So the second foundational truth that we see is that deaconing is something we are all called to. We're all called to be deacons in this very foundational sense of the word. If you scan the New Testament, to my knowledge, every time you see the word like servant or service or ministry, it's, it's the word for deacon. So a couple sub-points underneath there. Deacon is something we are all called to. One is, I want you to see service in general. 1 Corinthians 12, 4-5. says, Now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are also varieties of deacon. This is services, but the same Lord. So in the context of gifts given by the Spirit for the service of the body, it's this idea of, of deaconing. Also, caring for specific needs. There's, there's an idea of being a deacon or servicing, caring for certain needs. Acts 12, 25. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service. So this one's the idea that, that there was a need to be met. There was something that needed to be deaconed. And so they went and did that. And then it was done. It was completed. They finished their service. Then let's look at Jesus on deacons and service. And this is a very telling passage if we're to understand deacons. John 12, 26. It says, If anyone serves or deacons me, if anyone deacons me, he must follow me and where I am. There will my, my deacon be 
also. There will my servant be also. If anyone deacons me, the father, father will honor him. So if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the father will honor him. But then we also see Paul and Timothy said to be deacons. Paul and Timothy. Again, not in the formal sense that I think we see in 1 Timothy. Because what's happening in 1 Timothy is kind of the beginning, I think, more of a, a formalized position. But when you see like in Acts and all this that's going on in the gospel is the building of the kind of the context that should surround the idea of deacon and what's happening. So right now we're talking about kind of the context surrounding the idea of deacon um, before we jump into 1 Timothy here. So Paul and Timothy said to be deacons. Acts 21 verse 19. We're talking about Paul. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. The word there is deacon. Through his deaconing. Feels awkward saying that, but that's what it is. It's deaconing. First Timothy 4, 6a. Talking about Timothy. Paul says this, If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. You'll be a good deacon of Christ Jesus. So I think the big thing we can walk away from in just surveying those texts is that deaconing is something we're all called to. So as we talk about qualifications for deacons and stuff, I just want us to continue keeping this in our mind that this is not just for those one, two, three, four, five people in the church. This is for me too. I'm called at some level to do the same thing. It's not like they're like starting a children's choir in there or something. You know? Third foundational truth. Elders and deacons both serve, but in very different capacities. Just very briefly here, because we're not going to spend, I'll spend more time on this later. Throughout the New Testament, you have this idea of deaconing, right? I think it's, when you get to 1 Timothy, that you really get kind of the beginning of an uh, official title, position. Once we get to Acts 6, which is after the beginning of the establishing of the church, or at the beginning of the establishing of the church, there begins this division of responsibilities. You see both are servants, they just have different roles. They have different responsibilities. You have the apostles slash elders that are functioning in one role and then deacons that are functioning in a different role. Elders, just very briefly, uh, serve as authoritative teachers and church overseers. On the other hand, Dirk, Durkins, <laughs> deacons serve, deacons serve, Durkins, that Durkins, yeah, they Durkin, right? Deacons serve the elders in their task by caring for the practical needs of the body I think it's deemed necessary by the elders. I think it's what we see in Acts 6. So I'm, I'm, I'm showing a lot of my hand in that statement, I understand. But deacons serve the elders in their task, but by caring for the practical needs of the bodies, they as deemed by the elders. So this is, what's, this is what I think is kind of just a very brief distinction between the two. And in my notes, literally, they say this. This truth... Uh, this division of responsibilities is particularly important 
if any of you still suffering from a hangover from bad Southern Baptist ecclesiology. Um, that's what my notes said, so I thought I should read that. Uh, like, uh, this is real important for us to get, okay? Uh, that's why I keep kind of hounding that. All right. Now, after these foundations, two primary purposes for deacons. Now, for the record, I'm going to try not to preach for an hour and a half this week, as I did last week. Um, <laughs> uh, I should have just done two sermons. It would probably been better that way. But nevertheless, so two primary purposes for deacons, not 15, you know, right? All right, so as we jump into it, I, got, I, got, I have to give us like this kind of uh, something for you to keep in mind as, as we work through this. Two things, two things to keep in mind as we work through these two purposes. One is, how are these truths equipping me for service to the king and his body? How are these truths equipping me for the service to the king and his body? Right? So what I'm asking there is, what is the application for me? And I want you to be thinking about that the whole time. What is the application for me? And I don't mean that like, you know, be selfish. But like, be, you know, reflective here first. Not, oh my goodness, so-and-so should be doing this. That's in number two. How are these truths strengthening to the body? So I want you to keep those in mind. If you, you know, if you were writing those down, great. If not, just, if you can remember those two things, just kind of keep those in mind as we're working through this. You're going to be asking those two questions. What does it mean for me? What does it mean for the body? What does it mean for me? What does it mean for the body? All right, so with that, first purpose, distinction. Distinction, holding fast to the deep truths of the faith and modeling its implications for the body. That's purpose number one, not necessarily in any order of importance, but the first one being distinction. Sounds kind of like last week, right? Elders are given to the body. They serve the purpose of distinction, providing distinction for the body. They live in such a way that helps the body see distinction. Distinction from the world. Distinction from sin. Distinction that would show God's working in their lives and model it in such a way that you can look to that and go, okay, I see what that truth of God's Word should look like in my life as I see it modeled in that elder's life or in that deacon's life. Now, I want you to see as we work through this, there's a lot of overlap at this point between elders and deacons. There's, there's a lot of consistency here. The distinction that both are to have is basically the same. I mean, the requirements as far as morality and spiritual life and, and, uh, and how, how they live their lives is basically the same. Now, last week, I did not take the time to dive into each of these qualifications because the plan was to take a little bit more time to dive into that this week. Um, but when we're talking about qualifications for, an el- for a deacon, you need to be thinking these qualifications are the same for elders. So I want you to kind of take what we're saying about qualifications this week for deacons and, and superimpose that or add that to uh, the sermon from last week. So you can take that hour and a half sermon and make it two hours because 30 minutes of last week is going to come today. Uh, so distinction, right? So I, I did cut it down shorter. It could have been two or three, you know. 
But uh, so just add this to last week. But also, but but don't take it away from deacons too, because there, there's a lot of overlap here. <coughs> first area of distinction: spiritual life. First area of distinction: spiritual. Life. Again, not in any necessary order of importance. And and I also want to just be clear here as, as we walk through the text. We're going to walk through each verse. We're just not going to do them in order. Okay, so I hope that doesn't confuse you. We typically do, but this week I'm going to do it a little bit out of order. 1 Timothy 3.9 is the first word we're going to look at. Spiritual life, 1 Timothy 3.9. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Now here's the deal. I would say if you don't get like anything else I say after this point, this is one I want you to get, okay? So use all your brain energy here in these next few moments and then you can go to sleep after that. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Because I think, I would say this is of utmost importance. I think the other things fall into place when this is done. Like, I wish Paul would have said this first, but I'm preaching it first, so we'll help Paul say it first. First Timothy 3, 9. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Mystery. What is he talking about? Mystery. Say mystery equals God's redemptive truth now revealed in the New Testament. God's redemptive truth now revealed in the New Testament. What is it? It's Christian doctrine. I think the mystery is essentially Christian doctrine. That which would be different than what had been revealed to the Israelites for all of OT history, for all of Old Testament history. New Testament comes, and now the mystery that was hidden for all of that time from the Jews has now been revealed. That mystery has been revealed. So what would that mystery include? Things like the Incarnation. The indwelling Christ. That Jews and Gentiles are one in Christ. The saving gospel in Christ. These are parts of that New Testament, that, that mystery. So he's saying if, if they must hold that mystery, those truths, they must hold those. Now, not limited to those. Much, much more. But the very least, those just for our minds, just to kind of set the stage for that. It's this mystery. So the deacon must hold to New Testament revelation. I mean, you can see how this would be important during their day, right? I mean, you've got Jews that are going to know it's the Old Testament, and, and all the New Testament is kind of being formed, and new revelations coming, and, and Paul's saying they have to hold to what's being taught by our Savior, or what was taught by our Savior, and what is being taught right now by me. This New Testament revelation. Needs the, the incarnation of Jesus. And we talked a little bit at the, at, about the beginning, uh, at the beginning of 1 John, about what was being taught in 1 John by the Judaizers, you know, as opposed to the um, you know, salvation through Christ alone, and so on and so forth. So the deacons must hold the New Testament revelation. All throughout this book, you can see that Paul is concerned about sound doctrine. And all throughout this book, Paul is concerned about living in light of sound doctrine. So it just fits the context that Paul would say they must hold to the mystery of the faith. Now, what does he mean by with a clear conscience? What does he mean by conscience? Just, just very quickly here, I wish we could spend, maybe we could spend a bunch of time with this on Tuesday and Wednesday night in house gatherings, but just thinking through what this means. But conscience here, conscience always reacts to the body of truth that a person is committed to. Okay? That's the first thing we need to understand, that a conscience always acts or reacts according to the body of truth or the set of beliefs or the faith system, if you will, 
that a person is committed to. Have you ever heard someone say, man, I can't believe they did that. Don't they have a conscience? Right? Have you ever heard anybody say that? Yeah. The idea of conscience is that it always reacts to the body of truth. First of all, that, that, that's what we need to understand. It always reacts to the body of truth that a person is committed to. Now, the more you understand about the Bible, the stronger your faith and belief and the stronger your conscience. I'm going to break that down a little bit. So if we hold the faith strongly and firmly and our faith is thick, our belief set is thick, then when we violate our faith, our conscience accuses us. That's what happens. So we hold you know, our belief set, whatever our belief set says, whatever our truth set says, then when we do not live by that truth set we say we believe, our conscience is the piece that says, you didn't do that. You said you believe this, but you didn't live that way. So the idea here is that a deacon is this person who holds really strongly to the Word of God. Then because he holds strongly and tightly to it, and he, he knows these truths, and he believes these truths, he therefore lives by these truths, and in living by these truths, he does so in a way that his conscience cannot and does not accuse him of wrong. So that's what he means by clear conscience, that he's holding these truths, living by these truths, in such a way that his conscience is clear. It's not accusing him. It's not blaming him. It's not saying, no, you didn't do this. Now, I don't think that means that the deacon has to be perfect, or the elder has to be perfect. But there's this idea of standard here, and this idea of transforming truth of the faith, ultimately. I mean, because understand, right, Paul's theology here would be that this mystery that he's holding tightly to is God's using to transform his life. It's not the, the actions. The actions come as a result of the mystery of the faith that he's holding on to. Now just, so that's kind of explaining the text. Now I'll just give you a little bit of application here. Many of us sin. I think sometimes we sin for a couple reasons. One is this. We don't know it to be sin because we have nothing in our truth set telling us that it is. So there's nothing for our conscience to go, hey, this doesn't line up. We need to study the Bible, right? Seems pretty easy. We need to study the Word of God. We need to strengthen and thicken our truth set. Second, I would say maybe some reasons why in light of this that we sin is that we overrule our conscience because it's weak. And it's weak because the truth set informing it is weak. So it doesn't take much for you to convince and yourself and overrule your conscience. Your conscience is saying, no, 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 that's the wrong decision. That's dumb. Don't do that. That's, and you just justify it away. Both of those, I think, come from the fact that the mystery of the faith that we're holding on to is weak. I mean, I must confess, my 
mystery of the faith that I'm holding on to often this week. Where do I go? I go to the Word of God. Say, God, show me the mystery of the faith. Show me your truth. Help me to believe it. Help me to live it. Some of you have heard me quote Dr. Albert Moeller. He says that uh, belief is something you hold, but conviction is something that holds you. And I think that that's like kind of maybe where he's coming, coming when he gets, like I think he's thinking of this. I don't know, I should ask him sometime if he was thinking of Paul and the Timothy and the conscience and stuff. But when it's conviction, like you can't overrule your conscience. You have to do it. But as many of us, I think, I, I hope would realize that it takes a lot, like, like we have to know God's word, and when we know God's word, it should become conviction to us. So, spiritual life, I think, is very foundational for the deacon, but there's so much for us to think about here as well, and I hope you see that right here from the very beginning. So, spiritual life. The deacon must live and know the truth and live in such a way that his conscience is not accusing him. What, here's uh, just a side note. I, I have this in my notes, but like, think about Jesus. Jesus says, you know, if you, you say if you've committed adultery, you've sinned, but I say if you've lusted after her in her own heart, what's going on here? Now, he will get to the outward blamelessness of the deacon as well, and the elders as well. There will be an outward, but it starts here. It starts with this conscious, this living inwardly that will show itself outwardly. I don't think there's any mistake that Paul talks about this conscience here for both the elder and the deacon. Okay, moving on. Next one, personal character. Personal character. So deacons like, I'm sorry, verse 8. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. Now I'm just going to rattle through these. Dignify. What does he mean by to be Dignified. Again, these are, these are things that we should all be striving for and are all able to be strived for by each of us, even if we are not called to deaconhood or eldership. So dignified, it means they're serious. They're serious in mind as well as serious in character. This person has a, uh, one commentator said, a stateliness about them that demands respect. I would say, my, how if one was dignified in our culture today, how you would draw distinction from the world. The only people we think of as dignified in our culture is like maybe CEOs of companies. But my, how a Christian would look if he was dignified. Not a flippant person, not a silly person, not a frivolous person, not a person who makes light of very serious things. It's interesting, as, I, as the older I get, there's certain things that I do begin to care much less about, and the things that I care much about, I tend to get, I'm getting much more serious about them. All right, not double-tongued. So I think there's someone not given to gossip. They have integrity of their speech. Not addicted to much wine. I think the idea here is habitually this person is not known as holding much wine. Like, as in they're not uh, 
uh, known for being a part of that scene, that drunkenness scene, I think is the idea here that he's getting to. Now, I mean, there's people who disagree with that. I read a good bit of them this week. Some would say that that means they shouldn't drink wine at all. I don't, I mean, I don't think you can get there there. But, you know, we can respect, I think, their, their, their opinion on that, their interpretation. And he says, not greedy for dishonest gain. Right? So, not greedy for dishonest gain. I think, uh, I think that's pretty self-explanatory. You can flesh that out in your life as well. And I just want to ask this question of application at this point. Christian, do you consider the seriousness of your life? Right? Do we... Are we dignified? I want to kind of draw out that one for us. Do we have a seriousness about life ourselves? It's not just for the deacons, it's not just for the elders, but do you approach following, I would say, Jesus seriously? Now, just some very practical points of application for us. For those of you who are in DNA, if you do your DNA the night before, does that mean you're taking serious your following of Christ? Maybe studying your Bible once a week. Is that taking serious your life with Christ? There's just a couple examples. And you might be, but there's a couple examples. All right, moving on. Christian service is the next one. Christian service. 1 Timothy 3.10 says, And then let them be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. If you look at the verb here of being tested, it's actually present passive. So the action's happening to them. They're being tested. But it's present in the sense that it's happening and continually happening. It's not just a, they were tested and then now they become deacons and no more testing. No, it's a testing. It's an ongoing testing. And that's, again, the same thing would be true of elders. There's an ongoing testing. They're being tested, this Christian service. And if they are found to prove themselves blameless, then they will continue to serve and can continue to serve in that capacity. So next one, moral purity. Moral purity. 1 Timothy 3.10 once again. And let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Blameless. The idea here is that they're to be without reproach. Like no blot on their life. Nothing for which they could be accused of and disqualified for. Nothing that they could be accused of or disqualified for. Another short point of application here for us. This won't hit everyone, I understand that. But, you know, parents, we can live blamelessly, like before everyone else. But I just was wondering, because it just hit me this way this, this week, was am I blameless before my kids? Like, would my kids see me as blameless? Right? Because they're the ones that kind of get the unfiltered, right? 
I mean, they should. I mean, they, they shouldn't get your leftovers. They should. Do you lose your temper with them? Do you share the gospel with them at every turn? Do you show them the importance of the things that are important to our Savior? You know, are, are you blameless with them? And that can go on and on and on and on. But here's the deacon has to live in such a way that they prove themselves blameless. And I was just thinking as a parent, you know, this week, am I blameless before my kids? Because if there's anyone that could cast accusation towards my lack of blamelessness, it would probably be my kids. I mean, they may not be able to articulate it, but uh, they at least they will be someday. So there's lots of other applications for that. But here, the deacon, if he's going to serve as a deacon, should be blameless. All right, next one, home lives. Home lives. 1 Timothy 3.12. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. Let deacons each be the husbands of, husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. So, just the same as an elder, I think what's important here and what, is, what he's saying is that, the, that their heart and mind is committed to their spouse. I don't think that Paul, I don't think what is important to Paul or what Paul's even saying here is marital status. Like the idea that, that well, if, if the man's never been married, then he can't be an elder. I don't think that Paul's limiting that here. I don't think he's talking about marital status. I think he's talking about moral purity of their hearts as far as their commitment to their spouse. And then managing his household. Stewards of their resources, stewards of their kids. They have an ability to solve problems and head towards solutions. It's the idea of managing the household. It's not just something you walk into and passively let happen as a leader of the household. It's something that you are managing and solving and heading towards solutions. You're stewarding what God's given you in those households. All right. Underneath this home lines, just because I think this is a, kind of a good place to address this. 1 Timothy 3.11. Let's look at 1 Timothy 3.11. It says this. Likewise, or their, sorry, their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Alright. Here's the fun part. Particularly if you have Southern Baptist background. Uh, like their wives, likewise, must be dignified. All right, so we're going to talk about women deacons here for just a few seconds, okay? Just a few seconds. Uh, so just to let the cat out of the bag with that, and then we can wrestle a little bit later. Uh, Rusty and I believe that we should happily embrace the role of women as deacons, so long as the role is understood rightly. So I do think there's context where women should not function as deacons until the theology has been corrected. So, for all my Southern Baptist friends, I don't think that they should have women deacons until they get their theology straightened out. Okay? But, we, I don't think, have that issue here. So here's my very quick why. Why women deacons? So first of all, number one, Paul affirms women deacons I think right in 1 Timothy, right in this passage, and he also does so in Romans 16. 
There's just two examples. I think he, Paul affirms. So why women deacons? One, because Paul affirms them. And if there was a time for Paul to correct such an issue or to set the record straight, it would be now. If, if anywhere, right here. So verse 11. All right. So I know some of you with your wonderful ESV that I love dearly too. It's much more inspired than the KJV. Uh, just <laughs> Sorry, I had to say that. I think, that <laughs> yes, I'm joking, yes. <laughs> All right, going for I think, uh, uh, there's so much I can say right here, but what happens, so this is, I, and I know we won't all, or maybe a lot of us won't ever get to like study the Greek language, but, but that would be something for, certainly for all of us to strive for. But what's going on here is you have an ESV interpretation going on in translation, which that always happens. That always, always, always happens. Is that when you're translating a text, interpretation is always involved. Right? So the ESV, what the ESV has done at this point is they've looked at the context and their conviction is that this word should be translated as wives. The word is actually not, like, like it can be translated wives, but that's not the most, like, literal translation of what's going on here in this passage. So, like, the NASB, the New American Standard Bible, which is known to be much more literal, it says women must likewise be dignified. Women, it translates it as women. So, it's interesting because then when you look at the Romans passage in 16, 1-2, let's look at that. It says, in verse 1, it says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe a what? A servant. Which could be translated a deacon of the church. So, that's it. so that's the, again, that's the ESV in both places. Now, let's go back to the First Timothy passage. It says, Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. That's a NASB translation. My question is this. Why would there be qualifications for the wives of deacons and not for the wives of elders? Like, that doesn't make any sense to me. If there was going to be qualifications for either, I think it would be the qualifications for the wives of the elders and not the wives of the deacons. Although I think there's a reason why it would, I think it would be both. But why would there be for deacons and not for the wives of elders? And the second thing that I want to point out is that likewise, the word likewise, I think means we have a new category because it was used in verse 8 to mark a new category. Right? So if you just look at 1 Timothy, he says in, in verse 1 of chapter 3, he says, The saying is trustworthy, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer. Category 1. Chapter, or verse 8. Deacons likewise. Category 2. Then verse 11. Likewise, women. Category 3. Now there's three categories in these two passages, starting in chapter 3, verse 1. Overseers, likewise deacons, likewise women. Women who would be deacons. 
Now, here's the thing. When we're talking about language here. If Paul wanted to say the deacons possessive, right? The deacons women, he would have said their women. Like he would have said the deacons women at this point. It would have been possessive, but he doesn't say that. He just says women, plain. Likewise, women. Not likewise their women. Not likewise their wives. Not likewise wives. Likewise women. These things. Right? All right. And then you see Phoebe, and then chapter 16 of Romans, we already addressed that. Paul is happy to call Phoebe a deacon in Romans 16 as she serves in the church. All right, so one was Paul's affirmation of this. Second, I would say is that the role is nothing like that of an elder. Now, this is part of why I think it's important that we draw the distinction on the husband of one wife not being a marital status issue, but being a, a purity of heart issue. Not a marital status issue. Because a lot of people will say, well, women shouldn't be elders because it says husband of one wife. I think that's a terrible support for that. I think women shouldn't be elders because of all of the verses he says right before chapter 3. And everything since Genesis. We don't need that terrible proof text to, uh, to say that women can't be elders. I don't think that's what that means. And it was funny because quite a few years ago I, I used that. I said... Well, you know, women can't be elders because of that. And, and my friend said, what? I think there's a whole lot more reason than just what he says there for why a woman can't be elders. I'm like, huh? And then a few years later, God helped me, I think, understand that. But anyways, all right. So their role is nothing like that of an elder. I've already talked about if you have a Baptist, Southern Baptist background, that, that deacons function like elders. They oversee the overseers. You know, however that works. They oversee the spiritual side of the body, etc. In that case, I think that while that church has bad ecclesiology, they should abstain from female deacons. I think until that time, until that is cleared up. Here, though, as a church, I don't believe we are confusing deacons and elders. One cares for the physical needs of the body. The other cares and oversees and leads and teaches concerning all the needs of the body, especially the spiritual needs of the body. So a deacon is not necessarily a teacher, and he is not, or she is not, exercising authority over a man in his teaching. Now, without getting too confusing, you'll see in Acts 6 where these guys will do some teaching. Stephen will do some teaching. So the deacons are not exempted from teaching. But it's an understanding of where that teaching and how that teaching should be applied. Okay, And they're not exercising authority like a woman as a deacon doesn't mean that she has to oversee and, uh, and teach in authority over a man. She doesn't have to in that role. All right, enough with that. Okay, we have fun. Distinction, purpose one. Next, dis, uh, sorry, purpose number two, delegation. Delegation. Serving the physical needs of the body under the direction of the elders. Serving the physical needs of the body under the direction of the elders. What I mean by delegation is that they are recipients of delegated work. Okay? Just to be clear, delegation. What I mean by delegation is that they are recipients of delegated work. Delegated tasks. Delegated role. Like what they're going to be doing. What they're going to accomplish. Okay? Let's move through this. Now we're going to kind of go to Acts and work through Acts very quickly here. 
So a deacon's primary role is to support the ministry of the elders. That's the way I see it in the text. Some would say, well, their primary role is unity of the church, their primary role, and, and that's okay. I mean, if, if that's the way you read the text, it's, it's not the end of the world. I think, uh, but I think what they're doing here is they're serving the elders. Now, they're serving the elders for a purpose that's beyond just making the elders feel good, okay? But they're, all, they're serving the elders first and foremost. They're relieving a responsibility of the elders. So look at chapter 6 of Acts Verse 3 says, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. Now, he just said earlier that it's not good for us to neglect the ministry of the Word for this task. So it seems that the apostles acknowledged that the physical needs of the body were legitimate. That's the first thing we need to notice. That the apostles could have just said, you know, That's not something we need to worry about. That's not something we're going to give ourselves to. We don't need anybody to take care of that. Now, the other thing you need to notice is that the apostles were taking care of this up until this point. So the apostles were serving. So they acknowledged this as a legitimate need. First of all, that's the thing I want to point out, that the elders, first of all, uh, acknowledged it as a legitimate need in the body. But they said it was not good for them to give themselves to that, to the neglect of this over here. So the elders could have continued on doing it if it had not caused neglect in something that only they had been given the task by God to do. So by taking care of this physical need that the apostles deemed worthy The deacons were serving the apostles slash elders whose main obligations lay somewhere else. Just take a few moments to point out here that the deacons were not a separate group of authority in the church. They are fundamentally encouragers and supporters of the ministry of the elders. Fundamentally. So when we think about deacons, I I just think of all the years my grandpa spent in ministry and how the deacons were the biggest pains in his butt, right? They were the ones that would tell him he couldn't do this or you couldn't do that, and, and, would, like, and one church run him off. Like, you know, that's not what a deacon does. A deacon is there to fundamentally encourage. And I just think, I mean, it breaks my heart, but I think of all the turmoil that my grandpa went through in ministry because the deacons were not doing what they should have been doing. They were, as a matter of fact, they were the antithesis of what they should have been doing. They should be the deacons. So as we think about deacons for the future of renovation and how we can live even like deacons, even if we're not called to be deacons, they should be the most supportive people in the church, particularly supportive of the elders' leadership and teaching. They're not another group of authority. The deacons are here primarily to serve the proclamation of the word as they serve the elders. So the first line of service appears physically to go to the elders, but it's ultimately for the proclamation of the word done by the elders. Deacons take care of needs so that the elders can concentrate on praying and teaching the word. So they can take care of that need. Deacons take care of this need so that the elders can take care of this need. All right. I think it's a beautiful picture. I just want to lay that as a foundation. Then, next, deacons are to care for the physical needs of the body. I've already said this, but I just want to dive into this a little bit further. 
Chapter 6, verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint of the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. There was a physical need in the body. There was something that needed to be done, that someone needed care for. And the 12, it says in verse 2, and the 12 summoned the full uh, number of the disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. So the elders note that servitude needed, that the servitude needed is essentially equated to serving tables. There's a physical need, not demeaning this need, but he's saying that this is what it is. Literally, it's preaching the word of God to deaconing tables, to serving tables. Now I want to note here that it's, not, it's highly unlikely that these seven guys... I mean, think about the size of the church at this stage. Because I want to keep us away from the idea, okay, well, those are the people who serve. It is much, much, much more likely that what's going on at this point is these seven guys will oversee the service and lead. I mean, and maybe I should stay away from the word oversee because that's too confusing in the context of talking about elders. But let me, let me, let me back up. That the deacons would lead in serving... They would lead in serving this need in the body. So, you know, as I talked like with Kristen, talking about hospitality, what does that look like in the body? We talked about from day one, like just over and over again, it's not you being hospitable. You're leading other people to be hospitable. And you need to get other people on board with you to be hospitable. And, and she's done incredible at that. It's been good. All right, so... They're caring for the physical needs of the body. I wanted to remind us here at this point. What does that remind us of? It should remind us of God's care for our needs. Right? It's a tangible reminder of God's care for us. God's care for us. How wonderful. It's a tangible display for the rest of the world. As, as we are led to serve, and as, as we serve, it's a physical needs, a reminder of God's care. Look at John 13, 35. He says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. How do we display that to the world? We take care of each other's needs. Now, I just, I just have, we just need to ask this question, each one of us, this week, multiple times, and we need to continue asking this question. And that is, do other people in the body feel served by me? The way I live my life, the way I conduct my speech, the way I lead my family, the priorities that I choose, do I feel cared for? I'm sorry, does the body feel cared for? Does the body feel served by me? We would all do well to ask that question, myself included. <clears throat> okay. Because remember, if you've been cared for by the king, you will care for the children of the king. Right? Okay. Next, next one. The product of a deacon's service is unity of the body. The product of a deacon's service is unity of the body. This, this is, a, I think, a glorious thing. Uh, so Acts 6, what's going on? 
The physical neglect was causing spiritual disunity in the body. Okay? There, was, there was grumbling, there was griping going on. And one group of Christians was beginning to complain about the other group. And the apostles were ultimately, I think, concerned at this point about the unity of the church. Now, how does the unity of the church come about? The ultimate unity of the church comes about as doctrine permeates the body. So we're unified around doctrine. We're unified around the Word of God. So if we have to give ourselves to this physical need, we're no longer going to be able to preach and teach the Word of God as we should. But then also, there's a fact in which there was just practical disunity going on. And the apostles wanted to take care of that. So he says, let's give these guys to take care of this. So it's a, it's, a, it's a benefit both ways. It's like a, like a uh, double whammy, if you will, for lack of much more dignified terms. It's a double whammy. They're, they're taking care of the physical need and kind of squashing some of the disunity that way. And then on top of that, the elders are freed up to preach the Word of God. And that brings about unity for the body as well. So there's unity kind of coming, uh, the goal of unity kind of coming at it from, both, from a couple different ways. So when we think about unity of the body, this is the goal for all of the gifts that God's Spirit gives to His church. All of the gifts that we, each one of us are given is given for the unity of the church to build the body up. John Calvin said this, the more anxious a person is to devote himself to upbuilding, the more highly Paul wishes him to be regarded. 1 Peter 4, 10-11 says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So the goal in serving, you can look at you know, all the one and other things. And all in Ephesians talking about building up the body so we unified in Christ and, and found mature when He returns. So many passages that talk about unity of the body and using our gift for unity of the body. That's the deacons are leading and using their gift to unify the body. So deacons must be those people who have their eyes set on unity and they model following Christ as they follow the elders. They have their eyes set on unity. Like when you serve the body, do you have your eyes set on unity? Like that you are a part of bringing unity to the body of Jesus Christ. And you take care of needs. And you care for those things. All right. And the next, and this one is very, very practical even for us, is that the deacons will coordinate particular ministries. So here in Acts, they're given the task to coordinate a particular ministry. <coughs> I don't think we see anywhere them as a, like a formal body of people that get together to deliberate and and to think although i don't necessarily think that that's wrong um, but what we see is that you've got these deacons overseeing this and you got sorry wrong term for this context you got these deacons leading and serving in this way and these deacons leading and serving in this way and taking care of this need taking care of this need taking care of this need now if they collaborate on how to best do that that's that's one thing but to be a separate body to kind of get together and, and like oversee and, and begin to deliver. The, the, I think that's where we start, where it gets 
We have to be very, very careful. And I'm just saying that because my experience has been that. The deacons get together to determine the will of the church, and then it's just a bad day. Um, that's not their function. So if that can happen, they can talk. Without doing that, then, then great. Instead, what we see, instead of this like formal, like, anyways, is we see them as people who coordinate a particular need of ministry in the church. So when we think about like particular needs in renovation, roadie crew, like that's a need, right? Set up, tear down, leading that. I did that, right? So that was an elder leading a particular need of the body, and I did that for the first year, two years, something like that. Um, and then other people have done that. Tim Chop, if you, remember, if you guys remember Tim Chop, he did that. And, and then it was Robbie, and, and then now it's Brian leading in those, in those capacities. That's, that's a big deal. And you got like hospitality, um, our missions, uh, you know, kind of the administration side of our missions work, and, and then women's ministry, and facility care, and finance, and administration, those kind of things. Now, I want to say this, and this is just very applicable to us, speaking to us as a body. At this point, we don't have official deacons. <clears throat> we have people who are leading in these areas, and we call them leading servants, which is essentially like calling them a deacon, but we've not called them deacons at this point because I don't, I don't think we've sought to qualify them as deacons yet. Right? And what I mean by that is it's not, if we want to qualify them as deacon, that now all of a sudden we just start imposing a requirements on them. That's not, my, that's not my point. What I mean by qualifying them is leading them to recognize these qualifications and leading them uh, to... to um, uh, What's the word? Like grab a hold of this bigger view than just taking care of this one part of ministry in our, in our body, but having a view that, that speaks to, like this is a part of the unity of the body, and this is part of caring for the overall, and how, how all that fits together, and just helping them have a bigger, helping them grasp, that was where I was looking for, grasp a, a bigger picture than just that particular ministry. Now our desire is in the near future is to is to pursue that. <clears throat> we, we want to have deacons in our body. This is a grace of God to us. We want to do this. And, and maybe we should have done it a long time ago. Either way, we're going to do it now. We want to equip and see God qualify certain people as deacons and lead the church through their service and seeing them encouraged as deacons. Again, we want to paint a grander picture for the church and for people serving in these capacities. We want to encourage them to be more than just taskmasters. We want them to seek to unify the body through their various services. Again, just as a reminder, it means that they're not, they're not the ones that do the task necessarily. They're the ones that lead in doing the task. They're the ones that lead in bringing other people along to accomplish that task. All right, so deacons, that just kind of paints a picture of some things we want to do. So I want to encourage you to be thinking, what is it, again, what does this deacon, what does this look like for me? What does it look like for me to live in light of what God's called an elder to look like and an elder to do and a deacon to look like and an elder to do? And what does that look like for me? And then, you know, as a body, we want to be thinking and looking. And, and if you go back to Acts 6, he, he goes to the disciples, they go to the disciples, or sorry, the apostles go to the full number of disciples, it says, and says, bring out from among you seven guys. 
to take care of this task. So you know what that says? That says that you as a body have a role in recognizing, bringing forth, submitting, encouraging deacons. You have a part in that. We need that. We need that. And we need that as a church. And I think that's, you know, Rusty and I have had multiple conversations. I think one of the things we need very much so as a body is people that have this kind of vision for service to the body. And so it's wonderful. And God can lead us in that and we can move forward and, and, uh, and all the encouragement and benefit that will come from that. And, and, and just to be clear, some people have some of this vision for the body. I just want to make sure I throw that out there too. But we want to lead in this way and we want to head that direction as a body. So last couple points. The response of the body. This will go very, very quickly. The response of the body. How do we respond to this? Look at 1 Timothy 3.13. So for those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So as we think about this deacon, it is to that deacon's benefit that he or she serves well as a deacon because it says, for they gain confidence in the faith. That means there's some level of confidence to be gained from serving well. Now, as followers of Jesus, whether you've been called to be a deacon or an elder or not, it would, be, it would serve us well to keep this in mind too. It would serve you well to keep this in mind. That there is a general sense in which service to the king will gain anyone great confidence in the faith. Can you look at your service, understanding where that service comes from, and say, you know, I have confidence in the faith. So this last statement I have down there, we are all called to be servants. We're all called to care for the practical needs of others in the body. That's not just a deacon's role. That's not just an elder's role. We all have one another's that we're supposed to be doing. I mean, all this is, we talk about this in our covenant, too. We're all called to serve the elders as they serve us with the Word of God. I would say that's not just a deacon's role. But how are we caring for the elders as they care for us in the Word? But we're all called to be servants of the King. I want to remind us, Church, you get to serve the king. You realize that? Like you get to serve the king. Huh. And that's not something you just get to choose to do. Right? God has to enable you to do that. God has to set you free from the, the chains of slavery to unrighteousness to be a slave of his so that you could serve him in righteousness through His Son, that you get to serve the King. I was telling someone who was digging holes not too long ago that you're digging holes but you're serving the King. Like what more could you want? What more could you want? I mean, I know that's funny, but like seriously, do you look at your service as service to the King? You know, as a deacon, you'll be serving the elders a lot, but you're serving the king. Serving the king. I can just linger on that one. I've said enough, I guess, but serve the king. 
Like, that's another one of those. If you don't get anything else, just take it away. Serving the king. Because, why? Because we have all been served by the king, right? We've all been served by the king. If you're a follower of Jesus, then you have been served by the king. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, you have been served by the king. The Bible says that through the seed of Abraham will come a blessing for all the earth. Some of those will be blessed by the presence of God's servants, and some of those will be blessed as being God's servants. But we have all been served by the king. I think we lose sight of servanthood because we forget how much we've been served. We don't understand and we're not believing the nature of God's servitude to us. I'll never forget the day that my professor in seminary talked about, and I can't explain all of it right now, but he talked about the, the selfless servanthood of God. Because understand that even when we worship God, we are adding nothing to His joy. It's a part of His joy, but we are adding nothing to His joy. He is totally satisfied in the Trinity apart from His creation. Okay? But then what does He do? He serves us. Does He get anything that adds to His joy in return? No. But He is joyful in serving us because that's who He is. So talk about selfless servitude. When we understand that and that comes from our Father, then we can serve in light of that. You know, just I was thinking this week as I thought about this, we think about like burnout, right? Burnout and servanthood. I think a lot of times that happens because we're forgetting that we're a servant of the King and we're forgetting how much we've been served by the King. So, service, deacons. We want them to lead us in serving, taking care of needs. We've all, though, been called to servanthood, to serve each other, to serve the body, to serve the world around us because our King has served us first. Right? I want to pray. We'll take some time to reflect on these truths in song and then we'll be dismissed after that. So, Father, thank you for your kind words to us this morning. I pray that your people are encouraged that they get to serve the King. I pray that we would enjoy, reflect upon our shortcomings, that in joy we would anticipate the eradication of our shortcomings, that we would enjoy Your work in us in bringing these things to the surface, these, these shortcomings so that You can change them and mold them and, and, and make us more fully displaying the image of your son Jesus to this world and to each other. And so, Father, just, I just pray that you give us a vision, uh, give us uh, a, a more clear desire for the vision that you've painted for us in your word for what servanthood looks like. Father, we give you the praise for that and the glory for that. Father, I pray that we would recognize it as your strength that in us, that brings forth servanthood. And Father, that we would not lack in repentance if we're not serving, but Father, we'd repent and experience your forgiveness. Father, thank you for serving us. Thank you for serving us. You're the worthy servant. We are the unworthy servants. But you are the worthy servant. Father, just... uh, Bless this time. It's in your son's name. Amen. Would you guys stand with me?